Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today, Dr. Alexander Jones joins the show again. On May 29th, 2021, Professor Jones joined the show and we had a conversation about what astronomy was like in Hellenistic and Roman Egypt. Today, Professor Jones is back on the show and we're going to speak about and explore what scholars know about Greek calendars in the first millennium BCE. Dr. Jones is Leon Levy, Director and Professor of the History of the Exact Sciences in Antiquity at the Institute for the Study of the Ancient World at New York University, based in the US. He has written many publications over his career, including authoring the monograph, A Portable Cosmos, Revealing the Antikythera Mechanism, Scientific Wonder of the Ancient World, which was published by Oxford University Press. And Professor Jones joins the show today from New York City. Welcome back on the show, Alex. Thank you, glad to be back. Good, good to connect with you again, Alex. So to create sufficient background and context for our conversation today, in the context of this topic, so we're speaking about ancient Greek calendars, what is a calendar? Okay, that's a, a very good question, because I think we have a way of taking for granted that we know what calendars are. Uh, but um, the, the basic idea of a calendar, I think, is it's a way of naming and structuring time on a scale built out of dates, so longer than days, and particularly something that's going to reflect the annual needs of a society. Uh, so it's going to arise out of the annual cycle of hotter and colder, wetter and drier weather, the seasons in other words. Um, but the way that this tends to play out in people's lives is the agricultural year, the religious year, which is often tied to agriculture because festivals tend to be tied to when you harvest and so on, um, and civil life, uh, the institutions of a state and private uh, business and administration. Uh, so in all these contexts, uh, as civilizations reach a certain level of, of complexity, they're going to need some way of structuring time on that scale and naming time so that you can, for example, keep records or know when to do things. Um, so, uh, as I say, the, the, the natural year is sort of the most obvious need for this, because you want to be able to say when it's time to prune the vines or sow the, the crops. Uh, but, and, you know, the, the solar year is not really such an obvious thing in terms of things you can watch for. Uh, the main thing that you could be looking at for the sun is where is it rising on the eastern horizon every day? Because it's going to go through a cycle going north and south of due east through a year. So if you start with when it's at its furthest uprising point, a year later we'll come back to that after going north and dumping it back again. But that's a very slow process and around the limiting points, it's very hard to see the change. So in, another way of putting that is solstices are very hard to pin down until you get a sophisticated astronomy with instruments. Um, so a kind of intermediary comes into use in most ancient calendars, the phases of the moon become the main observable cycle because they're easy to see. Uh, you can look at the same time of day and see where's the moon in the sky and what does it look like. So the most common pattern is to look around the time when the moon 
disappears as a waning crescent in the morning sky then isn't seen for typically a day and then it will be seen in the early evening sky as a waxing crescent so for example the near eastern calendars like the modern jewish calendar use the new moon crescent as the signal we start a new month now and the greeks more or less did the same thing although some arguing over whether they're really thinking of the new moon crescent or maybe the invisibility of the moon just before that um, so you have this cycle how long does it last well the average lunar month is about 29 and a half a tiny bit more than 29 and a half days but if you're basing your months on some observable phase of the moon it's always going to start at the same time of the day or night uh, which means it's always going to be a whole number of days either 29 or 30. So you have these lunar months, about half of them are 29 days long, about half of them are 30 days long, and you give them names. And if you start doing this, and I mean, you could, you could give them just number names if you like, like month one, month two, month three, month four. Um, the Greeks, uh, in each city of the Greeks, there's a different calendar with different names for the months. And they're often named after some religious festival that's tied to that month, um, or something else connected with religion. So you need 12 of these, and then you're going to be just about back at the same stage in the seasons as you were before. But if you keep doing that year after year, you'll find that the months are sort of creeping back relative to the seasons, that a month that you thought of as a harvest month is happening consistently too early for the harvest. So what do you do? Whether we're in the ancient Near East or whether you're in the Greek cities, you repeat a month when you feel that you need to get it back in line. So it might be the last month of the year, that you do again, or it might be the month right in the middle, like the sixth month of the year. Um, that's the, the way it's done. These are called intercalary months. So some years are going to have 12 months, some years are going to have 13 months. And there are just 12 names usually, and one of the names just sometimes gets repeated. So that's basically how the calendars work. Uh, but they're, they're finding a way to tie together the obvious cycle of day and night, sort of the shortest part of this time system, the phases of the moon, which are a very convenient way of parceling off your days in handy groups of 29 or 30, and then keeping it in line with the seasons through calendar years that have the 12 or 13 months. So today we're focusing on, for the most part, the first millennium BCE. Before we get into that period, and we might get into that period um, very quickly, do any calendars in the Greek region show up in the records earlier than the first century, or rather the first millennium BCE? Yes, uh, we do have uh, date calendar information in linear B documents from the second millennium. I'm not an expert on that area, but I can say that basically the lunar calendars exist that early, um, but we know not a great deal about how they're administered. Um, when we move into the first millennium, um, you start getting significant information about time reckoning uh, and how Greeks do it in Hesiod's poem, The Works of Dates, which is an archaic period poem, 7th century BCE, which has as its core uh, a description of the agricultural year, the cycle of activities that a farmer needs to do, uh, which of course, you need to specify the times of year when those are done. Now, interestingly, they're not done using a lunar calendar. 
There's only one reference to a lunar month in Hesiod's poem, and that's in a part that's about good and bad luck days. Um, so instead, what you have is uh, ways of telling the time of the year using sun and stars without the phases of the moon. So it's not a true calendar. It's a kind of solar stellar time reckoning, which is keeps being used by people in contexts like medicine. You know, the Hippocratic writings have this sort of thing. And you find it in the uh, Aristotelian corpus and in, in Theophrastus talking about the life cycles of plants and animals. Because this is really a way of measuring off the year that is tied to, in a very direct way, to the annual uh, seasonal variations, weather patterns, and so on, with, without the mediation of lunar phases. Um, so easy will talk about. Uh, the rising of Arcturus, which happens in the early autumn, as a kind of a signal saying we're at a certain stage in the year and we need to do certain things as farmers. Um, but at the same time, in the Greek cities, they are using lunar calendars for a whole range of other kinds of activity, in particular for structuring the religious activities, festivals, uh, the if, if whatever system of magistrates, if they have annual magistrates, when does the term begin? Um, if you have, uh, if, you, if you contracts, when do the contracts take place and so on. So those are done using lunar calendars. So these are the calendars that use, in the first instance, a cycle of 29 or 30 days counted in some way through the cycle of phases of the moon. And then these month parcels of time are given names and 12 distinct names always happen in the same order to make the, the administrative year. So those administrative years and religious years are not going to be three, they'll never be 365 days or close to that. They're going to be either about 354 days if they're a 12 month year, or if a, an extra month is thrown in by doubling one of them, they'll be about 30 days longer than that, so 384 days long. And it's only on average that you keep in line with the seasons, but there's a kind of a wobble of these uh, months with respect to any particular stage of the, of, of the natural year. That's, uh, that's not a huge problem, but it's one that, in a sense, needs a kind of a taming because uh, uh, in earlier stages of calendars of that kind, uh, it had to be sort of done on the fly. You had to make decisions in real time whether you actually needed to lengthen the year to 13 months this year or not. Uh, and obviously, there's an advantage of being able to plan in advance, to know in advance, and to have the confidence that your months and your years are going to stay uh, without drifting so that you're not going to find that there's no harvest when the harvest festival is on the calendar uh, or you're not going to uh, make a contract to fund uh, to, to fund say a, a maritime uh, exp expedition to to get crops from say the black sea at a time of year when there are too many storms to make it safe or maybe too late for the crops the really interesting thing we have increasing body of evidence for from the second half of the first millennium BC uh, for Greek calendars is that there's a, evidence for an increasing attention to and success in finding ways to make these lunar calendars less dependent on arbitrary decisions, less dependent on observation, and more dependent on predictable cycle so that you could know in advance what any year in the future was going to be like, what any month was going to be like. Is Hesiod, is his 
writings about the mechanics of a calendar, is that the first known attestation in the first millennium BCE? And is it thought that is he is it thought that he's inventing the, the, the those mechanisms that you you described, or it, or is it believed or known if he's documenting something that already exists? I believe, I may be mistaken on this, but I believe that Hesiod is our first author from the first millennium uh, in Greek who talks about the scale of time reckoning calendars and the parallel to calendars with sun and stars. Um, and he certainly is not inventing this. I mean, he's not an astronomer. There really doesn't exist such a thing as an astronomer in the Greek world until arguably the later 5th century BCE, you get a couple of people, Maton of Athens, Eutemon, whose activities really do center on astronomy, seemingly for its own sake. Uh, earlier than that, you have astronomy being used by people for practical purposes. So Hesiod is not inventing or discovering a way of using the sun and the stars to tell what the farmer needs to do. He's recording what would be traditional knowledge. And the, the things that the farmer watches for are pretty obvious and recognizable constellations in the sky. Uh, they're, they're not a system of 48 constellations like what you find later in Greek astronomy. There are only about five or six that are named. And then the really obvious ones like Orion, the Pleiades, Sirius, brightest star in the Greek sky. Um, so it's a layman's astronomy. And then when you a little bit later, you get Hippocratic writers, the physicians traveling around the Aegean regions um, and describing the, the cases that they observe. They're giving the same kind of recognizable constellation sort of dating. How much symmetry would there have been? So, so it, it, the lunar calendars, is that an example of an uh, an early type of calendar in this period that we're speaking about today, Alex? We don't know when lunar calendars come into being anywhere in the ancient world, but it's clearly very early. From time to time, you get claims that some object from, say, Neolithic times has 30 marks on it, and people say, ah, oh, this shows that there's a lunar calendar. We don't really know that. Uh, but what we can say is that as early as we have systems of writing, so as soon as you have cuneiform that can have documents that have some kind of dates, they're lunar calendars. Uh, Egypt is a different kind of calendar from the earliest time we have dates, which doesn't use lunar months. But behind that, there must have been a lunar calendar originally, because the, the months in the Egyptian calendar are 30 days long, all of them 30 days. That's clearly modeled on lunar months. It's just that they've, they've separated it from observed phases. So the Greeks must have had lunar calendars way back before they had the Greek alphabet. And it starts showing up in writing as soon as you get inscriptions that have dates on them. You get a little bit of the lunar calendar stuff in Hesiod, but not very much. Um, and then as soon as you get into 5th century literature, like Hippocratic writings, uh, Aristotle, uh, there's a lot of this stuff. Uh, the Athenian calendar tends to be particularly well attested because we have so much literature from Athens, and so many inscriptions from Athens. But each Greek city has its distinct calendar with different month names, different start for the year. For some start the year in the spring, some in the summer, uh, and different conventions for counting the days within the month. 
and the most common is just to count up one, two, three, four, but they'll often go in a group of 10 and then another group of 10, or they may count downward, backwards, like a countdown for part of the month. So there's a huge variety of different kinds of things. Um, and some of them we don't really know very much about because uh, our main source of information outside Athens for calendars is inscriptions. Some places don't give us many inscriptions with dates on them, but even if we have inscriptions with dates on them, we don't necessarily know how they fit in terms of a calendar structure. So we may know, say, four or five of the 12 month dates of the year, but we don't know what order they are, or we may not know what time of year they happen. Um, there are important cities for which we have practically no calendar information or only indirect information coming from other places that were influenced uh, by the, say, a founding city of Collins. An example of that is Corinth. Uh, Corinth had founded uh, colonies in northwest Greece and in Sicily way back in the 7th century BC. Uh, from Corinth itself, we have only a couple of the month names of the Corinthian calendar survive. One in an inscription, uh, one I think in Plutarch, I, I don't remember, but it's some literary text that mentions a, a, a date in the Corinthian calendar. But we have a lot of inscriptions from places up in, in, in Epirus and uh, in Corsaira in northwest Greece, which are the areas that were either colonized by Corinth or were culturally under the strong influence of the colonies. And from there, we get far more data for the Corinthian calendar. Uh, then, I mean, just a decade or, or a little more than a decade ago, when we were uh, reading the inscribed texts on the Antikythera mechanism fragments, we discovered the whole structure of this Corinthian calendar inscribed on one of the dials. And all of a sudden, we knew the order of the months. We knew all 12 month names. Uh, we knew a rule for which months have 29 days and 30 days. That's a very, very rare depth of knowledge to have. And it's just because we have this amazing luck to have this scientific object that has the style on it preserved. Um, so very, very varying levels of, of evidence. Interesting. And it may have sounded like I was changing the direction of my thought or question uh, in the last last question, but I was I was going somewhere with the lunar calendars uh, question. And then what coincidental, um, happy coincidence is you, I think you answered, answered it in your, uh, in your response. I was going to ask about symmetry, if there is the degree of symmetry with the different city states. And, and it sounds like there was many different shapes and sizes, if you will, of calendars. Um, in the, in the classical period, would, would most of, of the different city states have been using a, a, a lunar calendar? And to what degree do you believe it was accurate? Pretty well all, if not all, the Greek city-states use lunar calendars. As I say, there are just very, very many different ones. Um, we, for most of these states, we can't say from any decent evidence that we have how well they kept in line with the phases of the moon and the uh, and the seasons. We do have some evidence. I mean, particularly from Athens, we do have inscription evidence that shows that uh, there was a, a high degree of sort of official administrative interference with the calendar, um, so that you had the official state calendar 
getting out of sync with the, the face of the moon. So inscriptions will say that a particular uh, date that is of something being recorded in inscription is a certain month and day, and it says in Greek, katatheon, which means according to the divinity. That means according to the moon, so the actual day count since the month began according to the observable face of the moon. But there will be a different day number that is kat archonta, according to the magistrate or according to the archon. So that's the official state calendar. And what seems to be happening is that for various reasons, um, extra days are being thrown into some months because somebody wants somebody official wants to delay a religious festival or there's some reason to want to drag time out and then toward the end of the year they must have corrected for this by shortening some months so that you would still keep the start of the new year uh, for the Athenians with the first new moon after summer solstice uh, so you can get this short term out of sync with nature going on in Athens and this is probably happening elsewhere too um, so um, that's, a, that's one kind of irregularity that you have. Uh, another kind, and we don't know so much about the degree of it, is just having difficulty, say, with telling when the summer solstice has actually happened. So that if you're not really sure about the solstice date, then you're not really sure when you should start your new year cycle with the phases of the moon, even if you're sticking to the phases of the moon. Um, so, uh, we don't have anything like a, a thorough picture of it, but what we have suggests that in the classical period, it's still very bumpy. Uh, and as we move into evidence from Hellenistic times, and the Antikythera mechanism is one particularly brilliant piece of evidence from Hellenistic times, probably you know second or first century BCE, um, then what we can see is that there are efforts to make it much more regular. Uh, and one part of that, which is shown on the dedicator mechanism, is using a cycle that's going to say, uh, every 19 years, you're going to repeat a pattern of 12 month and 13 month years. Uh, every 19 years, you're also going to repeat a cycle of months that have 29 days or 30 days. So it's quite an elaborate pattern. And the idea is that you don't really need to be watching the moon at all, and yet you're still going to keep in line with the moon because this cycle spreads out the longer and shorter months and the longer and shorter years, like spreading butter on a piece of toast as evenly as possible so that you, you get much, much tinier discrepancies with nature. Major festivals like the ancient Olympic Games, the ancient Delphi Games, etc., would have had people from many different uh, re areas who many of which probably operated from different calendars I, I i i take it based on some of your responses so far alex what's what's known or what can be inferred about how they made that all work how do you get in in an athletic festival for instance like the ancient olympic games how do you ensure all these athletes from all these different different areas show up on the same day or or even the same week that's a very interesting question. Um, and initially, it must have been a bit of a challenge. Because, you know, some of the, you know, like the Olympic Games go way back uh, to archaic times. Uh, and there would not have been any good communication of calendar information, which, as I say, in that time was being, decisions were being made about how many months in this particular year on the fly. Uh, so 
uh, I think there had to be a certain level of, of guesswork and probably sometimes uh, you would have an unfortunate early or late arrival. Um, it's particularly for these pan-Hellenic festivals that we have to worry about that. Of course, most religious activities are local. So most of the festivals in Athens only matter to people in Athens and in Attica and not to someone even in a neighboring state. But the, the Pan-Hellenic Games, uh, which means in the first instance, the four really prestigious ones, which are the Olympics, the Isthmians, the Nineans, and the Pythians, uh, all of which went on either a four-year or a two-year cycle. Uh, those were very prestigious, and they drew athletes and, uh, and spectators from very wide areas of the Greek-speaking world. Then there are a whole lot of other more minor games that are seeking that level of cross-Greek uh, attention. And so you have, you have games in Athens. Athens is not one of the cities that had one of the, the top four, uh, but they had their Panathenian games annually. And these more, you know, originally more local games are seeking the prestige of the major Panathenic ones. So they're also sending ambassadors to other states. We have a lot of inscriptions and, that are, are of this kind that are, are recording the visits of uh, ambassadors being sent from a particular place to sometimes very distant Greek city to say, we're setting up a new cycle of games in our city. We want to encourage you to come uh, to participate in. Uh, and we also have inscriptions like, you know, it's a particularly uh, impressive statue base that survives from Athens, which records uh, an athlete's victories, all of which are representative in a kind of pictorial way with a little, with the, um, the, um, I'm trying to think of the word now, the, the sort of the crown of leaves that was given as the prize to the athletic victor, say in wrestling. Uh, this is pictured as a little circular wreath on the inscription with inside it the name of the games and the name of the competition that this athlete won. And there are 20 or 30 of these on the statue base showing that this, this guy traveled to all the major Hellenic games, um, but also a lot of these more minor ones, and some of them at considerable distances. Uh, he, he's going from Athens all the way, for example, to uh, the, the games that are called the Naa in Dodona in Northwest Greece. Uh, I mean, on the modern map, it doesn't look terribly far, but these, these, are, these are long and, and non-trivial trips that these people are doing. And so obviously there's a motivation to get some kind of predictability. Um, this, this is one of the things that probably contributed to these efforts of Greek cities to make their calendars more regular. It, it involved two elements. One of them, first, they have to make the local calendar predictably cyclic so that it's regular at the local level. But the other thing that you really need to make these sort of long distance communications of dates work is to coordinate the calendars with each other. And to, if you really want to do that thoroughly and without any complications, uh, so that each month in calendar A has a specific counterpart in calendar B, um, then you're going to need to make the cycle of 12 and 13 month years the same in both places, 
you don't need to use the same month names and you don't need to start the year at the same point, but you do need to make sure that whenever you're doubling a month, it's being done simultaneously in the different places. And uh, one of the things that inscriptions have shown us, and it was all even back in the 19th century uh, C, uh, in modern scholarship on calendars, it was starting to be recognized that there are certain um, types of documents. These are mostly manumission documents that are, are the record of the, uh, the liberation of a slave. And they're being done in Delphi because it's a sacred site. And what the way the manumission is done essentially to, to give the slave to the god Apollo. And so a document is made, and we have many of these things that record the date of this manumission in the calendar of Delphi and the calendar of where the, the owner is coming from in the area of Delphi, but but not there. Uh, and what we find in these manumission documents is that there's a consistency going on that the month in the Delphi calendar, the month in the other calendar, it's always the same pairs happen, which means that these are now coordinated calendars. Uh, so we can't say at present that this is happening throughout the Greek world, but certainly in a kind of a regional way it's happening. When does the symmetry that you describe there as an example of symmetry between different um, areas, when, when does that approximately happen? What, what century, Alex? I don't think we can really say when the coordination is first happening, partly because the typically these inscriptions, although they have dates on them, they don't, they, they're not datable by the year. The date is just month, month and day, say. Uh, so you can get a certain amount of, of archaeological context. Sometimes it will help you to get some idea. Uh, but this is Hellenistic evidence. It's, if we're not seeing this in any recognizable way before, certainly before the third century BCE, to my knowledge. The idea of using a cycle for regulating a calendar, like the Athenian, we first hear about this in connection with Athens. And I, I think in a previous answer, I mentioned Maton of Athens, who was one of the first people we could call a, an astronomer in the proper sense in the Greek speaking context. Uh, and one of the things that Maton was remembered for, we don't have any surviving writings by him or any, uh, any very direct evidence from him, but we have the memory of him centuries later as someone who introduced the idea of this 19-year cycle, which even now we call the Metonic cycle, uh, as a calendar structure for Athens. So it doesn't look like Athens really adopted it for some decades afterwards. Uh, they do adopt it uh, within, I think, a century of Meton's time. Uh, but not immediately. So either he wasn't entirely successful, or we don't really know the story behind this. But um, uh, in, in fact, this metonic cycle goes back to the Babylonians, and they're already using it for the Babylonian calendar close to 500 BCE, which is about 30, 70 years before Metonians supposed to have started his cycle in 432 BCE. So working our way through the period chronologically, so when we're so when looking at the Hellenistic period, how would you describe the landscape to be different in terms of calendars, calendar or calendars, I presume it's still the latter in this case, being used versus an earlier period like the classical period, which we spoke a bit about? 
in the first instance, we have the continuity. They're using lunar calendars in the classical period everywhere in the Greek world for pretty well everything except maybe for navigation of the agricultural cycle. Um, and then in the Hellenistic period, they're still doing that. Um, so that, that flows through. Um, what's changing is there's this interest in regularizing the calendars. We don't know how complete that process is by the end of the Hellenistic period when, when the Romans basically supplant the whole idea by imposing the Roman calendar, the Julian calendar structure over everything, which means you're no longer using lunar months really at all. Um, so there's another aspect to what's going on with the Hellenistic Greek calendars, which is spread of knowledge of the whole system of varying calendars so that in one place you wouldn't just know your local calendar, but you could get information about calendars from quite distant places. This would have been necessary if you wanted to take advantage of the synchronization. Because uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you don't just need to know that the calendars are in principle synchronized, but you actually need to know the names of the months in the place where the festival you need to go to uh, is happening. Uh, and the anti-Cathar mechanism, again, is evidence for this sort of long-distance knowledge of calendars, because it's an object that was made in one place, but almost certainly for a commissioner in a quite distant place. Our current thinking is that it likely was made in Rhodes, and it was made for someone in Northwest Greece. We don't know exactly where in Northwest Greece, but it has that Corinthian calendar that's being used up there. And it has inscribed on another dial that shows the cycle of Hellenic games, uh, the Na'a games of Dodona, which are up in Northwest Greece. So uh, here, here you have an object made in a workshop in Rhodes that undoubtedly among the various other things that they make in this high-end specialized metalworking shop are these sort of calendar astronomical gear work devices that they're probably selling to people over many regions and they customize them for the buyer's local needs. Uh, so they need to they need to have some source of information. I don't know if this was some book on Greek calendars that we don't have anymore or how they get it, or do they just communicate with the commission and say, please send a description of your calendar, but it's happening. Um, and I don't think it's, it's just in the instance of this one workshop, but probably a much more widespread phenomenon that knowledge of calendars is becoming a more universal thing. You've mentioned the anti-Kithra a few times in your responses. You've written a monograph on it. Can you share, if somebody is completely new to the, the, the term, can you share what the anti-Kithra is or was and, and you have shared some relevancy, but can you bring back in a bit of relevancy to this topic that the Antikythera has? Sure. Uh, for anyone who is not familiar with the Antikythera mechanism, if you go to the National Archaeological Museum in Athens, uh, currently it's displayed in one of the rooms that has bronze artifacts and artworks uh, in a special case by itself. And these, it's a rather, rather, at first glance, miserable chunks of very corroded metal. So corroded, there's really almost no free metal left in these fragments. Uh, but if you look more closely, what you see is that there are um, parts of various kinds of dials, uh, like on, uh, on a scientific instrument, which in fact it was. Um, there's a dial, for example, that is part of a, an arc of a circle divided into the 
12 signs of the zodiac and into its single degrees within the signs, which was a dial that had pointers showing where the sun and the moon and almost certainly also the five planets they knew about in ancient times uh, would be on any particular date. On the inside of this device, before it, uh, it broke up into pieces, what happened to it is it was on a ship that sank uh, around 60-ish BCE off the island of Antikythera, which is where it gets its name, um, and it was recovered in fragments around 1901 uh, by sponge drivers working for the Greek government. Um, and uh, about a year later, it was realized that there are these bits of dials on some of the fragments, and there are also visible fragments of gears with little triangular-shaped teeth on them, um, and texts written in tiny Greek capital letters, like uh, the lettering used on Greek inscriptions on stone, but much smaller. Um, so a century and more of research on this has led us to understand that what it was when complete was sort of box-like device. It had dozens of gears inside. It had some kind of an input drive, probably turned by hand, probably on the side. Um, and if you turned this drive, it meant you were going forward or backward in time. Clockwise meant forward, counterclockwise meant backward at a very accelerated pace. So you could turn about five times around would take you forward a year. And there, there are dial or word dials on front and back faces of the box that showed you calendar cycles so that you could see the date as it was in this calendar of Corinth on one dial on the back face. And on the front face, you could see the date according to the Egyptian calendar. Um, you would also see where's the sun in the zodiac on that date. You would see, is this a month in which an eclipse might happen, either an eclipse of the sun or an eclipse of the moon. So all these simultaneous things, and also the cycle of the Panhellenic Games. Do you know whether this is a year when the Nemean Games are happening or the um, Na Games of Dodona? Uh, that's that's in a nutshell what, what the Antikythera mechanism was. So it was a combination of calendars and astronomy simulated to show, I would say, to show the layman interested in astronomy um, the whole coordination of natural and social, and social time cycles and astronomy. It sounded very advanced for its time. Well, yes, I think this uh, generally recognized that the Antikythera mechanism represents one of the various high ends of Greek scientific technology. Uh, it's not the only high end that existed. We have descriptions of very complex devices driven by air and water, the pneumatic devices, but none of those survive. In the case of the Antikythera mechanism, we have some rather vague literary references to things of this kind. For example, in some of Cicero's philosophical dialogues, he seems to have seen one. Um, but uh, we actually have these fragments that are a substantial remains, not complete, but substantial, of an actual one. Um, and yes, it, it, it represents a lot of technical astronomy through a very complicated system of connected years. Thank you for expanding on it. The whole topic in its own right. <laughs> I, I believe it. And thank you for expanding on, on that. And that helps me understand uh, what that was and its relevancy as, as well. Um, so in the Hellenistic period, some city-states or polities would have been part of the kingdom of Macedon. Others would not have been. Um, is there any evidence to, to show if there was any kind of 
coordination effort from the Kingdom of Macedon to adopt a calendar throughout its throughout its kingdom in this area. We do find dates in the Macedonian calendar showing up in parts of Alexander's conquests outside of the Greek heartland. Uh, for example, in Egypt, in Ptolemaic times, we find Macedonian dates on documents being used for government administration primarily. It's not being imposed on the broad Egyptian population as a calendar to supplant the traditional Egyptian calendar. And similarly, we find Macedonian calendar dates showing up in the Near East. But if you look at places like Athens and Delphi and so on, no, they are not uh, using Macedonian dates. Uh, they are using their local calendars just like before. So uh, it doesn't look from the evidence we have that any of this process of uh, calendars or normalization happening in Hellenistic times is being driven from above by Macedonian rule. It, it really is still something apparently more cooperative between the states. So by the end of the period, working our way to winding up the conversation soon, it, by the end of the period, how would you describe then is what you just described there the, the case you also mentioned that Rome, um, in, I, I'm going to use the term, in, imposes a calendar or introduces a calendar into this area when they're when they're ruling, and um, and so please bring up in your response to when what century that's believed to be. So working our way to the end of the first millennium BCE, what would have been the the, the calendar system in this uh, region in Greece? Okay, so the, the sort of landmark of events here, uh, I mean, I guess we could start with Julius Caesar's reform of the Roman calendar in the first place. Basically, the Romans getting their act together with their calendar so that it becomes in its own different way a regular and well-behaving calendar that keeps in line with the seasons. I say in a different way because it isn't using lunar months. It's a solar calendar that is having average 365 and a quarter day years and each individual year is either 365 or in leap year 366. So when Egypt becomes a, a province of the Roman Empire in 30 BCE, uh, within a few years of that, the Egyptian calendar has been made to conform to the pattern of the Roman calendar. They don't take over the Roman calendar, but they now have the Egyptian calendar with leap years. And similarly in other parts of the Eastern Roman Empire, the Roman calendar's structure is being uh, imposed with local month names still being used, but the idea that years are going to be 365 or 366 days. And to some extent, this is also true in the Greek states. Uh, not so completely, though. I mean, we, we have, we do have inscriptions from Roman imperial times from Athens that are still using the Greek the Athenian lunar calendar, um, but it's less conspicuous. Um, and uh, I, I mean, there's even one really, really late example of an Athenian calendar date, which is the uh, I mean, the, the the date when the Neoplatonist philosopher Proclus died. Uh, but that may be a kind of an antiquarian exercise. By that point, it's it's isolated by centuries from the nearest Athenian calendar date we have attested. So I think, I think that's a kind of scholarly exercise there. But basically, uh, you know, the, the, the Roman calendar 
really has a tendency to wipe out the use of, of lunar calendars pretty well throughout the Eastern Empire, as well as in the West, where the Roman calendar itself is used. Is there any last comment that you want to make about this period, the first century BCE, as it pertains to ancient Greek calendars before we wrap up, Alex? I guess one, one take I would have of this is that the development of these calendar cycles is partly something that the Greeks themselves attributed to their astronomers. If people like Maton, Euteman, his contemporary, a bit later, Hipparchus did some research on how to make uh, lunar calendars even more accurate in the long term by, uh, by taking a cycle that's going to be now almost 300 years long. It probably was never adopted by anybody. But what they're doing is they're making, making the calendars not depend on day-to-day -day need for anybody doing astronomical observation. So perversely, the astronomers are putting themselves out of part of their business in, in, in doing this. So astronomy becomes something that is, is like an accounting exercise. As it still is for us today, in the sense that you know, we, we, we live by the uh, Gregorian calendar, which is for us just a pattern of days, months, and years that we're sort of taught in school, keeps in line with the seasons, but nobody's actually watching the heavens to just make the decisions about leap years. So, so this is something that in the, the Greeks are already doing, shifting from astronomy to rule-driven calendars in these centuries. Okay. What uh, historical topic is um, grabbing your attention these days, Alex, and that you're doing a lot of research on? These days I'm doing uh, quite a bit of work on just trying to get a, a broader picture of what Hellenistic astronomy was about, and particularly the sort of public face of it. Calendars are part of that public face, but not the only part. Um, it turns out that a lot of what we have from Greek astronomy between, say, about 300 and, you'd say, 0 BCE, um, is not technical astronomy written for astronomers, but astronomy for the masses, you could say, or astronomy for the educated public. Um, and I've, I've begun sort of planning to make a kind of collection of all this archaeologically recovered material, inscriptions, texts from papyri, um, with the text, just basic text and English translation of these things, so that you can look through this material and just get a sense of what the picture is of what astronomy meant to people in this time. Okay. Good uh, wishes uh, with continued uh, research on these um, subjects, Alex, and it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show again. Well, thank you for having me again. Uh, keep well. Thank you, Alex. So again, everybody, the monograph that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Professor Jones wrote, he's author of A Portable Cosmos, Revealing the Antikythera Mechanism, Scientific Wonder of the Ancient World. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Alex and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.